Living is planting seeds that will grow in your life, planting seeds that inspire other people, planting beauty and planting life and planting light in other people. It's saying that I'm responsible because you're my brother. Because you're my brother, you are a part of my family, my body. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so honored to bring our guest to you today. She is amazing. Her name is Mema Cormo. She is the founder and CEO of the Tiger Lily Foundation and a 15-year survivor of breast cancer, which we're going to talk about. She has appeared in USA Today, US News and World Report, Cosmopolitan, CBS, The Oprah Winfrey Show, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and more. She's a sought-after speaker by the media and for policy events. She's also a philanthropist. Under her leadership, the Tiger Lily Foundation has launched national and global health initiatives focused on ending disparities through the hashtag inclusion pledge, participating with global stakeholders with a call to action to recognize health disparities as a social justice issue and working to end disparities for Black women in our lifetime. She's a global health advocate committed to justice and equity for all. Mema, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is awesome to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Richard. I'm so happy to be here. Well, there's so many amazing things you're doing, and I can't wait to share all of them with our audience today. But what I want to do, I love doing this because people have such powerful stories which shape them and shape how they're impacting the world. I want to go back in time. Tell us your journey. Tell us what put you on the path you're on today with Tiger Lily. Wow. Well, it's been a, a journey, to be honest. Um, so I'm from Liberia, West Africa. That's where I was born and raised till I was 15 years old. Um, within that 15 years of time, I um, experienced three wars um, in Liberia. Uh, my parents and I had to escape twice. And well, twice before. And the last time we escaped, we didn't return. They believe very much in philanthropy and giving back to others. And so whenever we left, they would always go back when the war stopped. And I'm like, why are you going back? And he said, well, there are other people that don't get to have, don't get to have what we have, which is access to a plane ticket, money to afford tickets to leave and to escape and be okay. And the infrastructure needs to be rebuilt and so forth. So they really infused in me, they really infused in me a sense of commitment to others and service to others. Um, my mother also during one of the wars rescued my father from a, a, a barracks, a prison. And um, she just showed me the importance of sacrificing for the ones that you love. And um, and so when the last war happened, my dad put me on a plane. Um, he can only only afford one ticket and he he chose me. Imagine being 15 years old and then you're you're in school painting a mural and you're graduating in a few months from high school. You're excited about life. You've been accepted into a couple colleges in the States that you've come to visited. You're, you know, you've been a straight student, valedictorian. You work really hard and everything you work for is right there as a teenager. And then one day you hear, you know, a lot of noise and there's 
alarm and all the kids are put into the gym and then you're told that the rebels coming to town you have to graduate a few days and then everyone's getting airlifted and back then there was no you know internet cell phones you know all these things um you know uh, facebook and nothing like that and so all your friends were just airlifted on planes many of my friends i went to an international school so many were diplomats kids and my father was a businessman and anyway would the tickets were, were scarce to, to find. And so he chose me and I was like, well, are you coming as well? He said, well, I only have one ticket. And that was me. And so I came to the States. Um, I was alone for a while. At some point, my family came, but imagine the time, the time span where there's nobody, you know, that you love with you. My dad gave me that ticket. He said to me, you know, this is, this is, this ticket is your way out of the country um, you're going to go to America and start start a new life. And um, I pray that we'll join you. But it's very symbolic for me, you know, that he was giving me this ticket. There's war all around. And he's telling me that he's choosing me to, to be the one to leave, you know. My mom is a nurse. He told me the importance of breast exams when I was 13. So they were both doing things that were very, like, parallel that transformed my life. She was very involved in healthcare. She traveled a lot with the UN all over the world. And one day she came home and she said, um, hey, go, let's go in your room and, and have a seat. And made me take off my shirt and do a breast self-examination. Now imagine you're 13 and you barely have breasts. It's the women who are listening. It's embarrassing as hell. It's so embarrassing. But she said, you know, your body will change. Don't be embarrassed to know what it looks like and feels like. As it does change, if you do these breast exams early and often, you know when there's something that doesn't belong in your breast. I'm like, I don't want breasts. <laughs> I don't want all these things. People are looking at them at boys. I, I don't like this at all. Long story short, 18 years later, doing a breast exam in the shower, um, there was a lump in my breast. Never had there been a lump before. My mom's words came back to me. I remember asking her, well, if something bad comes in or uh, pops up, how will I know? And her answer was, you'll know. And I knew. And so I was 31 years old. Um, she also impressed upon me the importance of having a very healthy provider, provider relationships. So my doctor and my OBGYN and I were great friends. So I went to her and she said, she said a really important thing, question. She said, what are we going to do about this? And, you know, when you talk about health disparities, a lot of times people don't, doctors don't ask patients questions. They tell them and they don't ask them, what are we going to do? It's more like, okay, here's what I think you're going to, you're going to need to do, or I need to do for you. You're doing this, it's prescribed treatment versus a co-creational relational situation. So got a mammogram at the time, women weren't getting mammograms under, under 40, I believe, or 45, but she advocated for me to get the mammogram, um, which I paid for out of pocket because it wasn't covered by insurance. And then um, I saw a surgeon who told me that I was too young to have breast cancer to come back when I was in my forties. And I said, no, I'm not doing that because this lump was not there a month ago and it's big, it's quite sizable that I can feel it. And we argued, um, I got an aspiration. It wasn't, the lump wasn't aspirating. So I said, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if it was a cyst, it would aspirate. It's not, so it can't be a cyst. And I was very young, right? I was in my 31 years old. So I pushed for, kept bugging her for a biopsy. She wouldn't do it. And um, over that six months of me calling the office and calling the office and, you know, calling the office, um, bugging them for a biopsy, trying to get one. Um, my lump kept kept growing. I began having fatigue, um, having night sweats, and I was like, something's wrong with me. So I persisted, and finally I did get the biopsy. 
And it turns out that it was stage 2B breast cancer. It was triple negative breast cancer, which at the time, up until two to three years ago, there was no targeted treatment for that. So imagine someone doing all the right things, you know, self-advocating, and you go to one of the best doctors in the tri-state area in D.C., in the nation's capital, and you're dismissed and denied um, access to the right test, and which resulted in me having a sizable, bigger tumor. And so it just struck me that if I had taken her advice and waited until I was 45, um, which I've already passed in age, I would have I would have been dead years ago. And so I, I was stunned, shocked. My first thought was my daughter, Noelle. I thought, what if something, I don't make it, what will happen to her? Triple negative breast cancer is the most aggressive breast cancer that that is out there. And again, no targeted treatment. So I was between a rock and a hard place. And I believe that in those places is where you're born, right? When you're, when you're pressed, you know, what happens when you're pressed? As Wayne Dyer says, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out? It's what's inside. And when I first heard that quote, I said, what a freaking stupid quote. What, what do you mean what's inside? But when you're squeezed, what comes out is what's inside of you. And so I was in a position where I'm in my peak, the peak of my life. And I've done the right things. Um, when, came, when the war happened, I began to volunteer, give back. I worked hard, helped my family. I was the first to get a job. They couldn't, they didn't have the papers to get jobs. So I I had three jobs at 16 and helped pay the rent and buy a car and feed my brothers and cook for them. And I was their mom. My parents were still struggling to make ends meet. So did all these right things. And then here I am now at 31 thinking I'm, a, I'm about to begin living the American dream, but maybe I'm about to die from cancer that I could have, I could have, detected earlier. So that is where Tiger Lily was born. It was this sense of like, God, if I survive this disease, if, if, I, if I survive this disease, I can't ask you to give me my, to give me life because people die that should not die. But what I can ask you is if I survive, I'll give my life in service to others who have, who are at, you know, who are facing health disparities, meaning women who are younger, who are dismissed, women who are metastatic, who were delayed like I was, and I could have been metastatic. Women who are of color, because Black women die at a 40% higher rate than women who are non-Black. And so um, it just became my sole purpose. God renewed my spirit in treatment. And that's kind of where this flower called Tiger Lily began to emerge and blossom and grow. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. There is so much to unpack and we kind of transitioned rapidly from, you know, escaping the rebels in Liberia to your breast cancer story. And they're both important and they're both powerful. So I want I don't want to do either injustice. So I want to jump back to when you when you left. So your dad basically says to you, I can only afford one ticket. It's you. You're going to the States. 
that happened to you and you were 15. So how long a period of time were you by yourself? I know your parents came over eventually. How long were you by yourself? I don't remember, to be honest. I'll be, I'll tell you the truth, um, Dr. Richard. I, um, I had some things happened, happened in 2019 that triggered severe panic attacks that the panic attacks also triggered these memories that were very scary. So imagine, as you asked me, you know, you're, so I kind of went through those things as if it's just a story, but there's a lot that happened there, right? A part of my brain just kind of turned off. So on that 15 plane, 15 hour plane ride from Liberia, from Liberia to the States, I went from a child to an adult. I lost the future I thought I was going to have. And I forgot much of what happened the next few months. It, it's still in, in spurts. I know that a new person, that the person that got on the plane in Liberia wasn't the person that got off the plane in, in New York. The fear of losing my family, um, the fear of being on this plane ride with no idea when I see them again, the fear of going to a new country without my family with me. I was a child very close to my family and we went everywhere together, you know? So this is my first time being without them and not knowing what's going to happen. So a lot of things happened to me on that plane ride. I had to sh- shed the, the child personality and, and just become a woman over in, you know, when I landed, I had to figure out how to call my uncle in Jersey. Um, I had to figure out how to get to my cousins in Virginia. I had to figure out, you know, how to help out in my people's houses because I didn't have, you know, we didn't have a lot. I didn't have a lot. So help my aunt while she's keeping me as, you know, keeping me for now, you know, how to just kind of exist and be in the, and some, you know, clean or help her clean the house and do chores and whatever, but not knowing where my family was and if they were okay. I think that that's kind of where a large part of me was born there are many bits and parts of me that have been that that are inside of me, but that was where that came, the personality that came that you have to survive no matter what. You have to, you know, create in the world what you seek and what you want to manifest. And if I'm the one that my dad chose, that's a huge, huge, beautiful, that's a that's a thing, right? I mean, for someone to say I choose you and here's all I have, and this is you or it. So there's also a responsibility that comes with that, right? So no matter what I ever encountered in life, the fact that my dad told me that, I knew that this, when I got diagnosed with cancer, it wasn't going to stop me, right. you know? And 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 what that means, people say, well, how do you say that it won't stop you? I mean, in the sense that whether whenever I leave this planet, I was going to do something about that situation that would transform how the world sees cancer and wellness and health. So. The war taught me to be and leaving my family and, you know, I only came with one suitcase. It wasn't like, oh, pack all your belongings and your summer clothes and your whatever. It was like, pack your essentials. And I packed two books. I packed the diary of Anne Frank in the Bible. And that was really symbolic for me because I thought, you know, wherever I'm going, if if Anne Frank could survive in an attic for that long and be that positive and be that forward thinking, and I can do, I can do whatever is coming for me, right? And so I, I just say that these things make us who we are. But when I began having the panic attacks, it began to trigger memories that I've forgotten about the war and being in hiding and soldiers shooting at my house, my parents' house, and about the plane ride, which I still can't remember the, the entire plane ride or how I got from the airport to my cousin's house, the one in Virginia, I'm sorry, in Jersey, then to Virginia. <clears throat> so 
it was a horrible time for me having the panic attacks, but um, it took me about, I just stopped seeing my trauma therapist two months ago after four years. Um, so it tells you how the mind can protect you, right? And for a child, there's so much that I've seen, like dead bodies and people I, you know, um, you'd be driving and there is a body on the road and soldiers stopping you and people in tanks and stuff like that. And so a lot of fear around that and around people, around my physical health, well-being rather, my family. But in a way, the panic attacks helped me to remember who I was. And it also there a way of my body saying, you're safe now. You can remember these things and unpack them and deal with them. And so that really has transformed my life in so many ways because a lot of things that were driving me for a long time, I didn't know. It's kind of like something's driving you and you're going towards running from war or cancer. And I was just going and doing all these things that I think that were wonderful. But a part of me would get up some mornings. I get up with my heart racing. Um, I'd have adrenal issues. Um, I just never could feel a sense of like settlement in my body, right? And and comfort. And having the panic attacks was again very, very terrifying. I went to the ER at least three or four times, like thought I was dying. I, my throat would close up and I couldn't breathe and my body wasn't calming down. And and they would give me, they would say, no, you're having, you're having a, a anxiety attack or panic attack rather. I'm like, what? I don't have panic attacks. I'm, I'm a boss. I got things under control. I have survived three wars. I've been hit by lightning. I'm a cancer survivor. Like I'm fine. I got this. And after the fourth time the ER doctor says, maybe you should see a therapist. So I went to see a therapist who said, um, after a few sessions, she said, Mima, I think there's some things you're not remembering because you tell your story. Like you asked me, you tell like it's a, like it's a novel. You just talk about it. Like it just happened. It's no big deal, but these are very huge things. And the therapist said, see, you need to see a trauma specialist, which I did. I saw an EMDR specialist and she, she really helped me because at some point during the panic attack phase, I couldn't even leave my room. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't drive a car. I would just shake and I couldn't breathe. And I would have, um, what do you, what's the call when you can't leave your house? I would, couldn't leave the house, couldn't get out of my room. I would have vertigo and I would be seeing things. I would close my eyes. It'd be really tight. And I would be like someplace else. And my daughter, who's now 19, was amazingly, she's a beautiful soul. No one knew I accept her for a long time. But at some point I got to her, seeing the EMDR therapist, she literally saved me because I was like thinking, I'm just going to, I just want to die. I can't live like this. I was, I had these attacks every day and, and every day for like the first six weeks. And then it went to like every other day and it became less and less, but she helped me to realize the importance of unpacking our trauma, right? And how important that is for healing. Now I'm in a much better place. And to be honest with, with breast cancer, even that's also a trauma. Any kind of cancer is a trauma or a health issue. We don't see it as such. We address the person's physical body, but not the things that emotionally that could have been traumatic for them and the violence of the disease to our bodies, right? So it really informed my work and the importance of focusing on healing and loving people even more deeply and addressing the things that happen to us, but also to our minds and um, how to help people to heal, you know, mind, body, and soul as they're dealing with any kind of, you know, health issue in their life. There was something that you said, and all of this is powerful that you're sharing, Mema. One thing I wrote down, survive no matter what. And so, you know, as it relates to your, your cancer journey and, you know, to hear this, just listening to it, and they're like, nah, we're not going to biopsy you because, you know, these are the base rates and usually affects people at this age. And, 
Nah, we don't think so, kiddo. Like it's astounding to me. And yet that happens every day. And, and you were able to advocate yourself. I mean, you, even you, you wouldn't stop. You had an OBGYN where it was a collaborative experience and and you're intelligent. Uh, There, there are so many people, particularly those that are historically underserved people of color that absolutely don't have the voice or the background or the survival instincts that you did to kind of navigate all of those things. Because if you didn't have those three things, you would assuredly not be here right now. And so I, I you know, commend you for your courage, for you know, being able to stand in the face of the, the trauma that you experienced, because it is a trauma. You know, when, when somebody says to you, you have an illness that could kill you, that's a trauma. That's, you know, it's, it's a, a trauma in the same way that somebody holds a gun to your head. It still, exactly. it still impacts the brain phys- neurophysiologically in the identical way. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a different experience. So uh, all of this came together. And as you said, this was kind of the spark for you to create Tiger Lily. I, I would love for you to share a little bit more in depth about all the good work that Tiger Lily and you as its leader are doing in the world right now. I would love to. And and first of all, I thank you for what you said. Um, It's really beautiful. I think that I want to address before I talk about, well, so Tiger Lily really was formed out of that survival no matter what, right? It's kind of like I've been through all these wars. And I say this when I speak sometimes, when I went through the wars, there were guns with soldiers around me that I had to run from, like literally physically flee from. With cancer, there's this violence inside your body that you can't see that's happening. So what's, it's even kind of, I don't know if you say if it's worse or not, but this, there are these soldiers, these little cells of cancer cells trying to kill you and you can't see them. And um, you don't know what they're doing and no one's addressing the real trauma around that. Also, I feel like, so that whole, and then there's a lack of having a doctor who I was told was one of the best, who's, you know, doing the aspiration, laughed at me and made fun of me and told me she had patients who are really sick who needed her attention and mm-hmm. I'm wasting her time. And I mean, just very dismissive. And when you think about, you know, um, racism in, in the world and in healthcare, you know, it's funny because I never thought about racism in healthcare. I thought the doctor is somebody that is taking a, a Hippocratic oath to protect you. So they're going to try and keep you safe no matter what. And experiencing that dismissal in the healthcare system to the point that it could have, could have killed me was very, very, um, it was very disheartening. Um, it really, it just made it, something in my body like switched. And so I began to think about how many women out there and girls who were younger would not be taught by their, their mothers to do a breast self-examination. How many moms wouldn't have pressed upon their child, did you do it this month? Did you do it this month? Until it was part of your, the fiber of who you are and your 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 um your physical hygiene, much as you do your brush your teeth and wash your face and take a shower and, you know, and how many girls would not have become as an adult in their own home, continue this healthy habit? How many would have not, would have not had a doctor who they had a relationship with as an OBGYN who could advocate for them that to the point of when the system said you can't cover her, cover her insurance. She said, Mima, you know what? You can choose to, if you want to let this go, we can do that. But if you think that something's wrong with you, I can get you there. I can write you their script to get the, the, the mammogram done and, you know, paying for it's another issue, but you know, she and I had a relationship. My mom and I did too. My dad, what's more important. The mammogram didn't cost $500. It, it, I could just, you know, I could pay it on a payment plan or I could pay it off or whatever, or just not buy other things. But I said, whatever the cost of it, I'm going to figure this out because I can't put my life, put this bill over my life. So 
people, some people can't, people can't afford the cost of mammograms. It's just, that's their food for the week or the month. Right. So, so I thought, what if someone who was underserved or less, you know, made less money, made an hourly wage, you know, at their job, couldn't afford the mammogram, couldn't afford to go back to the doctor's office to keep asking for the biopsy or calling or took the, the doctor's advice, the surgeon's advice that it was nothing. They would have waited until they were in their forties and presented with metastatic breast cancer and they would die. As a matter of fact, a lot of black women die like that. Women of, of all colors die like that, right? Because they're, and who are younger, as a matter of fact, to be specific, die because they're put off. I think the number is about 18,000 now a year are diagnosed and die because many die because of the late diagnosis. 18,000 or so are, yeah, are diagnosed and a number of those die. And with, with black women, they have again, a 40% higher death rate. So I kind of thought about all these things and I said, if I just lay here and you know, feel angry or sad and don't do something, somebody else will die and I will be responsible. I feel like um, people say to me, they always said, why do you feel responsible for other people? But there's a quote that I live by. It says, service is the rent we pay for a living. And many of us live our lives for so many years just for ourselves. We want to get, you know, get through school, get into college, get the next job and the house and the car and the 401k and then retire at 65 and a half and then die at some point, like that is not living. Living is planting seeds that will grow in your life. Planting seeds that inspire other people, planting beauty and planting life and planting light in other people. It's saying that I'm responsible because you're my brother. Because you're my brother, you are a part of my family, my body. You know, the Bible says that there, sorry, the Bible says there that in the, in the, in the human body, each part, like we're like a, the, the church is like a body that each one of us has a part to play up, like a body part, right? When each part works in concert, then you get to things, you work, it functions. And so I feel very much that if I didn't become a voice for other people, then someone could die because I didn't share my story or they didn't know to get a mammogram or pushed for the right kind of testing or ask the right questions. And so it was more about that sense of, you know, I can't let that happen to someone else. I just cannot do that, you know, in consciousness that that's fair or right or just. and. Um, Again, I had that instinct of surviving no matter what. And I thought everyone deserves that. Thank you for sharing, having the courage to share your story with us, your struggles with us. Uh, this time has flown by. And as you know, may my wrap up. Oh my everything. God. How did time go by so fast? <laughs> it, it has, but we, we have to we have to do what we always do on this show. And that is I ask everybody their biggest helping. So Mabel, what is your biggest helping that one most important thing you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? Well, only one thing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I live by a lot of quotes. So There's the quote by Dan Millman. And I always say it wrong, but it says, love is a warrior sword. Everywhere it cuts, it brings life. And that's something that I also is very, I, I think if you are here, your spirit in this body, in this vessel for this time, what are you here to do is to love yourself and others and to love life. And how do you do that? You, you do that by loving your temple and honoring it, you know, feeding it with the right things. The temple isn't just your body, it's your mind and, you know, and your spirit. And when you are given much, which is life is much, and you're able to breathe, then you have to give to others. And so what that means is doing whatever your privilege is. If the privilege is just breathing, and thinking and being able to be out of bed, how do you ensure that other people have that same right to life and access to life and health and well-being? 
Um, so I always ask people, what, what is your privilege, right? What is your gift? And how can you use that privilege for power to make a difference in someone else's life? And if you do that and do it every day um, with thoughtfulness and with grace and kindness and with vision and purpose, amazing things can happen. Perfect. Give us the URL so people can learn more about Tiger Lily. It's www.tigerlilyfoundation.org. They can find us on Twitter at Tiger Lily Cares and on Instagram at Tiger Lily Foundation. And I can be found everywhere as Mema. <laughs> so on, on TikTok on, and Twitter is Mema. Well, actually Mema, yeah. And then our Mema Carmel rather. So Twitter, Mima Carmel, Instagram, Mima Carmel, TikTok, which I love, Mima Carmel, and Facebook, Mima Carmel. And there Perfect. you have it. Perfect. And we'll have everything Tiger Lily and Mima Carmel mm-hmm. in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. Mima, thank you again. You're right. Time flew by, but I was so grateful we got to spend it together today. Thanks so much for coming on The Daily Helping. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. And um, just thanks for the platform and thanks for all you do. Thank you very much. And I want to also thank each and every one of you who took time out of your day to listen to this conversation. If you like what you heard, if you feel inspired, go give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because that is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today, do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 